There are times when the kingdoms of man are threatened by the outside. Times where enemies crouch at the gates, waiting for someone to devour. In those times, the kingdoms of man call not upon a mighty warrior or a brave leader, but on a man with a microphone who looks at evil and says unto it, Hello everyone and welcome to Rollin' Bones. I'm Ryan Howard. How you doing today? I am very excited for today's episode. It's it's a cool one. Not only is our guest super cool, but our conversation was unbelievably awesome. So today's guest is an editor at Forbes. He is the author of a couple books. Uh, the one that's most important to our conversation today is Of Dice and Men, the story of Dungeons and Dragons and the people who play it. But he is also the author of a book on VR, called Defying Reality, the inside story of the virtual reality revolution, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. David Ewalt is on the show today. And we had a ton of fun talking. It was great. If you haven't read of Dyson Men, do yourself a favor, whether you're new to D&D or you've been around for a long time, if you have not read that book, please pick it up. Please pick it up. All right. With that out of the way, before we kind of get into today's rant, there's a couple things I want to talk about. First and foremost, uh, I am cutting the outro. The outro is going away. All of my social media is going to be front-loaded. So, if you like this podcast, what you should do is subscribe on whatever podcatcher you're using, and also... Follow me on Twitter and Instagram. My Twitter and Instagram are both going to be now, from here on out, Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. You can find me on both platforms at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. And on my Twitter, it's a lot of kind of me just occasionally making snide comments about something, but mostly it's me talking about the podcast and, and reaching out to people and stuff like that. Instagram is a lot more focused on me actually painting miniatures. So those of you who are really into miniatures, you can see some of my work, see how I'm progressing as a painter. I'm getting better. I'm getting a lot better. Slowly but surely, I am I'm becoming good at painting miniatures. And I also want to shout out uh, my friend... Namira again, one of my players in my D&D game, Nim. She streams horror games on Twitch. Uh, if you are at all interested in that, you should definitely check her out. She's great. The chat community's fun. I'm in there every now and then. It's a whole lot of fun. She streams on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 6 p.m. Central Time. She usually streams from about 6 to 9 p.m. Central. If you like horror games, please check that out. And also, I just want to continue to uh, shout out all the, the cool people that I've had on the podcast who have stuff that you should check out at dmdave.com. He's always doing really cool stuff over there. Broadsword Magazine is coming soon. I'm hoping to get an affiliate link with him so that you guys can can buy it through me and, you know, I can, I can see a cut of that, but we'll see how that goes. I also want to encourage you guys, if you're looking for a group, to jump on Crawler by Jackie Zanto. That app is a lot of fun, and I just want to see it continue to grow and continue to be something cool. So, with the advertising out of the way. Let's go ahead and jump headlong into today's Rent from Behind the Screen. So what I'm going to talk about today is a little bit of kind of what's going on in my world as far as role-playing is concerned. I am a part of two games now. One of them I am actually playing in a game with a 
veteran of the show Josh Unruh and some of his friends. Uh, they are a great group to play with. Uh, we're kind of playing, not necessarily following the, the book strictly, uh, Waterdeep Dragon Heist, but we're playing a game in Waterdeep that is a lot of fun. It's city-based. It's not really like any any game I've ever played before. It's largely set in the same city. It's, it's pretty cool. I'm getting to do some things that I've never done with characters. I'm playing kind of a, uh, he's a Gloomstalker Ranger, and at some point I'm going to take levels in Inquisitive Rogue. And he's basically an investigator slash bounty hunter. And that has been a lot of fun kind of, you know, playing with that character. And uh, our, our DM is a first-time 5th edition DM, Randy. He's doing great. Randy, if you're listening to the show, you were, you're knocking it out of the park. I'm consistently having fun with your game. And then I'm also uh, still running a game that has my wife and a roommate and Nim and her, her boyfriend, uh, David, are, are playing in, in this game. And I'm to a point now where we are almost done with uh, The Lost Minds of Fandelver. And they are experienced players now. They're, they've We've been playing for months. They're getting the hang of it. They're starting to really discover their play styles and really kind of discover you know what it is they like about the game. And what I'm noticing is that what they like about the game is not necessarily what I had planned for the game. So what I'm doing right now is taking the story that I established that I gave to them in the handout and I'm kind of shifting perspective on it. And I'm not necessarily sending them off in the direction that I thought I was going to send them into. My original plan was they were going to wrap up Fandelver. They were going to have some time to run around and then I was going to put them in Red Hand of Doom. I've discovered that they feel kind of constrained by the modules. And that's something that I've never really encountered before because this is my first time running a game from a module. My first game, because I'm an insane person, was in a homebrew world. Now, it was not necessarily my homebrew world. It was one that I shared with Mo, my my DM. And it was actually, it was his world before the events of the campaign that I was playing in. We were doing a prequel campaign, kind of, sort of, about where my character came from. But he wasn't in it, necessarily. He was there, my party interacted with him, but he was not the focus of the story. It was more about how the world got to where it was and about the the empire that Cromwell was an heir to and how it fell and how the world fell into chaos with the fall of that empire and the eventual war that led to the destruction of the world. This is stuff that we'll talk about with Mo when he when he comes on the show. But like I said, that that world was a homebrew collaboration between me and Mo. And now I I'm running something out of a module for brand new players. And what I'm discovering is that this group of players or maybe it's my my DM style with the module. They feel very constrained by it. They feel like they don't have much of a choice. And in fairness to them, I've not given them a whole lot of a choice, and I feel like the module hasn't given them a whole lot of a choice. And part of that is, because I'm using a module, I'm leaning too heavily on the module and not relying on my own improvisational skills. And this is something that I'm actually learning from Randy as we're going through this game that's technically us playing through Waterdeep Dragon Heist, but we're not really playing it. And so Randy, you are actually teaching me something 
and uh, I definitely appreciate it. When you're playing a game in a module, don't forget about the other skills that you have as a DM. Don't forget about improvisation. Don't forget to give your players a sandbox to play in. Now, if your players are overwhelmed by the idea of a sandbox, and they want something that's more on rails, then by all means, just read the text. They probably won't feel too constrained by it if, if that's the type of game that they want. I should hope not. Otherwise, if they're complaining that their on-rails game is too restrictive, but then you give them a sandbox and they are complaining that they have no idea what to do, at that point you should probably sit down with them and go, look, do you want to play D&D or not? Which is, like I said, the pretty much the fundamental question when it comes to all things related to D&D. Do you want to play D&D? Someday we will dive into that question in one of these rants, as soon as I can find a way to say it without being a, a bit harsh to people. But as a DM, you need to remember that just because you're doing a module, just because there is a set story in that book, that book is not the gospel. It's your table. You are running that table. You decide what it is that's going on. You can rename the NPCs. You can you can do whatever you want. Don't feel that you are a slave to the module when you decide that you were going to play a module. I've actually heard uh, stories about this from my old D&D group. As Ashley and I talked about, one of our new... Uh, or one, one of our uh, players in the group, Joe, is DMing for the first time. And as kind of a practice run for this really cool Mesoamerican campaign that he's coming up with, Joe is running uh, Storm King's Thunder. And basically what happened in that game is a tsunami hit Waterdeep, and that was not supposed to happen. So there's all kinds of craziness going on in that game that isn't necessarily going by the book, I imagine. I've not actually read Storm King's Thunder. That might be a thing that can happen in there. But the way they were acting, it seems like that's completely off script and that's okay because that's apparently a consequence of the choices that they made and uh, you know that's that's something that's got to happen in your D&D game even if you are playing with a module so if there's one thing to take away from this conversation just remember that even though you're running through a book and you're, you're getting a lot of your content from this book you should still feel free to completely throw the book away if your players want to spend a session you know exploring a part of the world that you know you haven't necessarily been to yet if they're just like we don't really feel like going after the the main objective today we're gonna kind of wander around the map and and see what we can see just be like all right um you know you can roll up some random encounters if you don't have anything planned there's all kinds of tables that you can pull from of random encounters you know you can pull stuff from online there's people who've made resources for this because everyone has had players that have been like yeah no we're not we're not doing the main objective today we're just going to wander off this way and a lot of times as a dm you you know you you get caught off guard and you have to be like all right uh well you uh crap and then roll a dice and see what they run into or you know if if you don't feel like leaving it up to chance and you're just like all right you know what you want to you want to wander off fine here you run into pick something nasty from the book if that's how you're feeling if this is like the fifth time your players have been like eh, we don't care we're just gonna wander around because i mean we've talked about this before players it's all right to be like okay we're not really feeling the main quest right now let's just kind of see what's around doing that every now and then that's perfectly fine you're well within the the reasonable expectations of a DD &D game to do that but if you're consistently like we don't care about what you have prepared we're just going to wander around that sends a rather harsh message to your dm and then at that point the dm is well within his rights to be like all right you assholes have encountered a gold dragon and he's really not happy 
about all the murders that you've committed, or you run into an encampment of orcs, or you run into the main story. Since you've been ignoring it, the town that you guys have been staying in has been completely nuked by a necromancer. Serves you right. But no, just to, to wrap up today's rant, I, I just want to reiterate, DMs, always feel free to expand the world beyond the constraints of the module. Because I know it's very hard and very time-consuming to actually come up with a whole world and then come up with a story that takes your players through that world that, you know, focuses on them. And, you know, having to constantly come up with, all right, what are we going to do this session? What's what's going on? What are we going to do? That's hard. I've done that before. It's it's damn hard. There's a lot of times where you just walk in and you're like, shit, I got nothing. Uh, wander around. We'll, we'll see what we see. But if you're playing with a module, remember that it's okay to expand beyond the constraints of the pages. Don't feel like you're necessarily a slave to what's written in the module. Because I know a lot of you will, will end up changing names of towns and names of people. I've, I do it all the time. I, I definitely change names and places in uh, Fandelver. So that same spirit that you take to that uh, just just take it to you know the rest of the the rest of the map like all right they don't want to necessarily go take out the orc encampment today uh, they just want to wander around all right uh, yeah you guys wander off pick a direction you roll a d4 if you have to or something like that roll a d8 so you can get multiple directions and just kind of see where the road takes you and then use some of those resources that we have as DMs that we've made for each other on the internet to give them something to do let them have fun so yeah that's gonna do it for today's rant from behind the screen now ladies and gentlemen let's dive into it my interview with david ewalt i hope you enjoy it All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is my great privilege to introduce our guest at this time. He is an editor at Forbes. He is the author of, of Dice and Men, the story of Dungeons and Dragons and the people who play it. Ladies and gentlemen, David Ewalt. Hey, thanks, Ryan. I'm glad to be on the show. I am glad to have you on the show. So, David, we are going to start the show the same way we start every show, just a quick few questions. So that everyone gets to know who you are and what brought you to the table, as it were. So, David, how did you get into RPGs? Uh, let's see. So I started playing uh, role-playing games. I was probably in about fourth or fifth grade. So I'm elementary school. And one of my friends, you know, it was kind of the classic way of, you know, his older brother had a D&D set and, you know, I was over at his house, and he was like, hey, look at this cool thing. And we started flipping through the books. We're like, this is awesome. And we, our friends just started playing it. And so we got into uh, D&D as like a group of friends. It was one of the things we do to hang out together. Uh, and then from there, that evolved into other games. You know, I played a lot of D&D when I was a kid, but then started playing games like like cyberpunk and Shadowrun was a big one and some of the white wolf uh uh games like vampire the masquerade um so it was just it was a it was a big thing that i did with my friends when i was in elementary school and high school gotcha and so your first game was was that uh second edition ad and d 
Oh no, I'm I'm a lot older than that, man. My originally we were playing like the old school Red Box. Gotcha. Um, that was also because it was like an older brother's stuff. So mm-hmm. you know, I, I I, but the classic like the 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 rule set when I was a kid was second edition. But like we were we were playing that 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 original set that we played was the old school Red Box basic D&D. So like my first adventure was Keep on the Borderlands. Like so many other Ooh. people who 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 nice. had that that box set. That's sort of what got me into it. And then yeah, when we when we started building out um uh our, our own like real characters and campaigns, it was second edition. So David, who was your first character? Well, you know, the first one that I remember that really sticks with me, it was a character called Westlock, which is a coincidence because that's the character that I play in my book about Dungeons and Dragons, or at least has the same name. It's a different character. Uh, Westlock might also sound familiar to people because he was a character in an old uh, Gary Gygax adventure. It was one of the pre-generated characters that you could play if you bought that module. But I think we we must have played that module at some point. I don't even remember how I started playing that character of Westlock, but he kind of became my own character that, you know, with those friends with those D&D games you know he sort of evolved to be my version of that character and I played that character for years gotcha. I had a character like that named Cromwell nice that's a good one the rangeriest ranger to ever ranger <laughs> a lot of time in the woods yep <laughs> a lot of a lot of brooding and stroking his beard as well uh, that's very rangery. They're very they're very sort of emo. Lots of brooding with the rangers. Yep. Anyone who who kind of who reads your book gets a good insight into this. But for the benefit of the people who haven't, describe your play style as a player, and then uh, now that you've done it as a DM. Well, I think the thing that I really enjoy as a player is I'm into into problem solving you know and i like the role-playing aspects i like a little bit of performance and sometimes i'll have fun playing a character that's sort of unlike me and sort of playing that character but like i have friends who and other people i've played at the convention and stuff where it's very much about like oh i want to play a character i want to perform i want to role play and for me i think the thing that's most fun is is to is to problem solve whether that's like how are we going to kill this creature or like i love puzzles and adventures i love you know the sort of social interaction stuff when you've got to sort of negotiate something or you know go around a town and search for clues to a mystery like that's the kind of stuff that i get into when we've got a goal and we're trying to figure out how to get from point a to point b um, as a dungeon master I love to put stuff like that in my games, obviously, just because, like, you know, that's what I like playing. But I, the stuff that I enjoy most as a dungeon master is really telling a story. Um, I love to have like a lot of rich backstory for uh, the the game that I'm doing. I like to have uh, lots of interesting places and NPCs that the players can visit. Um, I usually typically overwrite any uh sort of adventure like if i'm preparing for a session i usually have a lot of stuff that the players never end up seeing or doing because i like creating the world like that's what's fun for me as i'm writing it and putting together is creating this story and even if they even if the players never actually figure out the backstory and sort of what's happening that's enjoyable for me of like okay this is this whole world and it also makes it easier i think as a dungeon master for me to 
improvise, which is something you have to do all the time. You know, when the players want to do something in your world that you hadn't prepared for, if you understand the world and the story and have all that backstory in your head, I find that super useful to be like, okay, yeah, I know we can, we can fake this. You know, I can come up with a whole adventure sort of on the fly because I understand the world so well. So those are two things that are related, but it is kind of like slightly different things that I, that I enjoy about being on either side of the table. In all of the games that you've played over the years, uh, which one do you think is the most fun? Hmm, that's a tough question. I mean, Dungeons & Dragons is obviously a favorite for me. It's the game I return to over and over again. It's fun because of the world that's available and the people who are playing it. Um, if I had to be totally clinical about this and just judge based on like sort of the rule set and sort of the mechanics of the game uh, i think that paranoia is a super fun game um uh and there's an old uh rpg called tune where you were actually playing like cartoon characters and that is super fun um but really what every game is, is comes down to who's at the table and who the dungeon master is and what adventures he's running. I've played games of Paranoia that just sort of crashed and burned because Paranoia is a tough game to to dungeon master. It's a tough game to be in charge of because it's so sort of stylish and weird. Um, and those can fail pretty easily. But when it clicks, man, that game is hysterical and very fun and very funny. Um, but really, it's it's a, it's about... It's about the people at the table. The most fun games I've ever played have been the ones with like my regular gaming groups because those are, those are my friends and those are the people I know and they know me and we share in jokes and like that's your, that's your clan right there and those are always going to be the most fun times. And uh, what's the least fun game or session uh, that you've ever played or run? Mm, that is also a tough question. I think probably the least fun games are going to be. It was probably, I don't know if I can put a specific finger on one, but like I, convention games or games at uh, uh, game stores are very hit or miss. Again, because it's often like people that you don't know, uh, people that you're, you know, they're like four hour friends. You know, you're sitting down with someone at a convention to just do a quick adventure and if people at the table aren't um aren't fun it's not going to be fun i'm kind of remembering one game in particular there was a uh a gen con game uh, uh wizards of the coast used to sponsor games at gen con they would have people there running the tables and it'd be like a big group game everybody in the room is sort of playing the same session and there was one of those i did that was just kind of a bummer like the dm wasn't very good and the players were sort of not into it and it just kind of it was it was not great um in terms of rule set, like I don't think there are any rules, any games that are inherently like not fun games. Like you could take a game with a crappy rule set, and if someone who is a good DM picks up that game and runs with it, it could still be lots of fun. If you could create, and by create, I don't mean actually like sit down and write out the rules, but more will into existence. But if you could create an RPG system for any fictional universe. Or update an old RPG with a more modern rule set, what would it be? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Let's see, for a fictional universe. Well, fortunately, most of the the big fictional universes that I, I like kind of already have their, their rule sets. I mean, there is a Star Wars game. There is a Doctor Who game. Uh, 
there's no real Lord of the Rings Tolkien game, but I mean, let's be frank, that's basically what Dungeons and Dragons is. Um, so man, if I was gonna gonna snap my fingers and create one from scratch, I don't know. I mean, I'm a huge I'm a huge Douglas Adams fan. So I don't, I mean, could you do a role-playing game like based on the Hitchhiker Guide books and that whole universe? Like it would be really chaotic and weird, but mm-hmm. but I'd like to try it. That could be really cool. I don't know. That would be a game, that's actually a very interesting and cool answer. That That would be a game almost like Call of Cthulhu, only instead of a madness table, you've got like a zaniness table. Yeah, there would have to be some sort of mechanic like that, like just some way of dealing with how overwhelming and weird and and chaotic the the world around you is. And at some point, you just sort of you know, you get you get turned into a whale, you know, plummeting <laughs> towards the surface of a planet. You know, just like random stuff happens in that universe, or you know, cosmic things that you don't know how to contend with, and you just got to deal with it. That would almost have to be a system where the DM is straight up an adversary to the players. Mm, yeah, I could see that. It could be sort of, sort of, yeah, some very sort of like GM versus player, yeah. Kind of like how, uh, have you ever seen or played through the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh, text adventure game? Oh, yeah, that old text adventure. Yeah, yep. yeah, totally could be like that. Where it's, it's essentially you versus Douglas Adams. Yeah. Yeah, that could be fun. Now that I'm thinking about it and we're talking about it, this could also be fun maybe if it was not even necessarily a whole system, but this could be fun like a one-off sort of convention game. Like you write like a four-hour adventure through that world and it sort of becomes like, can you survive these four (laughs) hours? Can you get from point A to point B? Just sort of like, yeah, that would be a lot of fun. Yep, definitely. And uh, for the last of these introductory questions, if you could put anything, and this can be, as I like to say, as sophomoric or as philosophical as you want it to be. But if you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Oh, man. Hmm. You know, I, I would like, this is something that that I guess I could do pretty easily, but I would love to have like a, you know, a t-shirt with a picture of one of my main characters on it, like Westlock, who I played in the book. Or, you know, I think it would just be cool to have like that sort of, you know, uh, a shirt with an audience of one mm-hmm. or i guess you know an audience of five maybe or the people in my gaming group but just have like my character you know because those characters mean so much to us as players but like it's not like you know wearing a shirt with legolas on it you know where people are going to recognize it and be like oh man legolas like no one is going to know what that shirt is but it's sort of meaningful as an individual um that could be cool yeah definitely Now we're going to kind of transition into these uh, questions more based on your work and what you've done. And the biggest one for me, I have 30-ish more minutes left in the audiobook of of Dyson Men. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've pretty much gotten all the way through it. And I just have to ask you, in the book... You mention a lot about kind of the stigma surrounding D and D. In the five years since the book was published, do you think that same stigma is still present? I think the world's perception of D and D has changed dramatically 
in the last five years. I mean, it has a lot in the last 10 and 15 and 20 years, but particularly just in the last couple of years. Uh, what is remarkable about Dungeons and Dragons in the year 2019 is that it's actually become cool. Like it's sort of fashionable and it's sort of hip because it's new and it's because there's so much like high tech involved at this point. But like there's a lot of cool people in media who are playing the game. There are famous people. I mean, for the first time, you've got like movie stars, literally movie stars who are big D&D players and are showing up at live games and stuff like that. And I think whereas if you'd have gone back to the 1980s and one of the periods that I talk a lot about in my book with sort of the history of the game, you know, D&D was looked at not only as something super nerdy, but as something dangerous. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was literally a period of time where people thought that playing Dungeons and Dragons was a deviant activity that led to criminality. I mean, there's a whole chapter in my book about the, you know the satanic panic of the 1980s, where you know if if people were arrested for whatever crime, and the cops ended up going to their house and searching their house, if they found Dungeons and Dragons books in their house, it was like they were finding drugs in their house or unregistered guns. Like the cops would report it as we found D&D paraphernalia in this person's house. Like, suddenly, we're, like this is proof that this person is a deviant criminal. Like, it's mm -hmm. crazy how bad the perception of the game was. But now it's, like, cool. And, like, people people are much more open-minded about role-playing games. And even people who have never played them, I think, at this point, are curious about them. I think there's a lot of people out there right now who, like... If you mention, hey, I'm, a, you know, if you say something to them about how you play Dungeons and Dragons, the reaction 10, 15 years ago would have been like, ooh, really? But now the reaction is like, oh yeah, I've been hearing a lot about that. Like I've always been curious. I kind of want to play that. And yeah, the perception is, has changed so dramatically, especially just in the last couple of years. Would you go so far as to say that the stigma is completely gone? No, I wouldn't say it's completely gone. I mean, it's still, we live in a world where everything geeky has become mainstream and has become fashionable. But there's still, I mean, there's still the old prejudices and things don't go away. I mean, whether it's D&D &D or whether it's Tolkien or whether it's video game stuff or comic books, like... That stuff is in many ways mainstream, but there's still, you know, a kind of perception of like, oh, that's nerdy stuff. I just don't think it's anything like it used to be. Like it's become so much – the world has become so much more welcoming to this hobby and to related stuff like that. And I think that's awesome. Like people are getting over their stupid prejudices and, and, and their ignorance and the game is finding a larger audience because of that um, you know there's still people who have dumb ideas about what D&D &D is but I mean not many it's really changed so much what do you think slash have you gotten into any of the the popular online shows about D&D &D like Critical Role oh sure I mean I've, I've seen them all like I think that's that more than anything is I think what has changed the popular perception of Dungeons and Dragons, but it's also brought so many more people into the hobby. I mean, even and let's say, you know, I don't care about perception, you know, I you know, I want to play the game. I don't care if people think it's nerdy or not. What I do care about is 
there are now so many more people playing and it's gotten so much easier to get a group together. It's so much easier to find new players than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And it's because of all those online games, things like critical role and any, you know, there's probably hundreds of different uh, groups that are playing on services like Twitch or that are doing live play podcasts or that are doing live play events, things like Acquisitions Incorporated. Uh, and those events and live streams have just like raised the profile of the game so much. I mean, I know people, I've met tons of people who don't play the game, but just like watch Critical Role as like a show for them. It's like watching game of Thrones mm -hmm. and they don't even play D and D they kind of want to now because they so much enjoy critical role. But for them, it's just like, I'm just consuming this as entertainment. This is just like a really good fantasy story. And it's, I mean, they're great. It's done so much for the hobby and it's just, it's, it's changed everything. I mean, it's, 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 it's completely mainstreamed it. So I just finished basically a week-long binge of the entirety of Stranger Things, so this is kind of fresh in my mind right now, uh, but I want to get your opinion on it. What do you think of modern media's portrayal of both D&D &D and the people who play D&D? Well, I think in 2019, D&D is getting portrayed very differently in modern media. One is that, so one is you have the Stranger Things effect. So uh, in each season of, of Stranger Things, there's been a lot of connections to D&D. &D. I still haven't seen the brand new season, so no spoilers. But like the first season in particular, like literally first episode starts with them, with the kids in the basement playing D&D &D, and everything's built around like the Demogorgon and the invention, the, the adventure that their players are going on. And I think that's because we sort of have a weird thing happening where people who grew up, who were kids in the 80s, who played those adventures, like the ones the kids in the 80s of Stranger Things are playing, they've grown up and now they're content creators, they're writers, they're producers, they're screenwriters, they're actors, and so now they're the ones telling these stories. They're the ones writing TV shows. I mean, the Duffer brothers who make Stranger Things, the reason why they wrote the show like that is because they're giant D&D &D nerds. Like, they played it a ton when they were kids. So, like, the perception of D&D in &D the media has changed because the media is now so often made up of people who play D&D. &D. And I think that's especially true of role-playing games because role-playing games are about telling a story. I mean, it's different than like, if you're super into chess and you played a lot of chess when you were a kid, that's great. And there's a lot of benefits of being a, a chess player. But chess isn't going to teach you how to tell a story chess isn't going to make you interested in like that sort of long-term epic storytelling and like having a story that you come back to once a year and that kind of thing so i think dnt was like a, this amazing fertile ground for creating a generation of storytellers and now those people are the ones making these tv shows and movies so yeah i think D&D in 2019 is showing up all over the place in movies and in TV shows, and it's it's largely very positive portrayals because it's being written and produced and directed by people who love the game. Like, it's not like, you know, the few portrayals you saw of D&D in the 80s were often bad because it was people who knew nothing about the game. But now it's people who love it. One of the first portrayals of D&D &D that I saw in modern media was actually on... Uh well, one was on a British TV show called The IT Crowd. Oh, yeah. It's a great show. And then 
another one was on the Big Bang Theory. Mm-hmm. And while Big Bang Theory is kind of infamous for taking pot shots at nerds, I felt like they actually, in hindsight, did a very fair and uh, interesting portrayal of how D&D is played. Absolutely. And I can, t- I, again, you know, going back to the same point, I can tell you why. Because, you know, in, in the IT crowd where we sort of, we had this great episode that sort of revolves around the guys playing D&D with a couple of salesmen who are new to the game. Graham Lineman, who is the creator and writer of that show, is a huge D&D player. Um, and he actually still plays role-playing games. I don't think they play D&D much anymore. They're playing other things. But, like, he actually has a group. Um, I've spoken to some of the other folks in the group that, like, they meet in, like, Oxford or wherever every week or two, and they still play. And mm-hmm. same thing with Big Bang Theory. I mean, the, the writers in that show, I think they got some people involved who actually knew the game and loved it. And I think, to their credit as well, with the Big Bang Theory's D&D shows, like, they brought on people to be on the show who Mm -hmm. really know D&D. So, like, those are the shows where, like, Will Wheaton would show up, and Will Wheaton is a big big role-playing game fan. Uh, Joe Mangiello, who was also on with that, like, episode near the end of the series where they're playing D&D, he's a huge D&D nerd. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like, they brought in authentic people. It's all about... You know, people who know the game and who love the game. And when people like that get involved, yeah, you're not going to, it's not going to be the the bad stereotypical, you know, oh, look at these nerds kind of portrayal because people who love the game are involved with it. it. It's funny that you mentioned Joe. He follows a whole bunch of people that I know and a couple people that I've had on this show. He doesn't follow me, unfortunately, but he's he's a guy that I'd really love to talk to at some point about... D&D and how how he kind of was brought into the world of it. Yeah, I mean there's there's a lot of people like Joe now, especially actors. Like there's a bunch of actors who grew up playing D&D and uh in a lot of ways found like that's how they found their their performance ability, like playing a, a character and 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 I know Joe was one of them. Um uh he has like a I haven't been there, but, you know, we have some mutual friends and he is like in the basement of his Hollywood mansion. Like he built like a amazing game room. They call it the Gygax Memorial Dungeon <laughs> or game room. And it's just like this amazing space. Like, and I love that that's like a thing now for like mm-hmm. rich Hollywood stars where it used to be like, oh, I've got like, I've got my, I've got the grotto out back. I've got the swimming pool or, oh, I've got the super fancy cinema room where we, you know, we can play 35 millimeter films, but now it's, you know, guys like Joe and his, and his also equally famous wife are like, no, we need a really, really fancy <laughs> D&D room in the basement. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Deborah Ann Wool, another uh, uh, big Hollywood actress who uh, uh, plays D&D and actually does uh, uh, live streams about it. Matthew Lillard. Um, lots of these actors who, mm-hmm. yeah, they're just really interesting, fun people who who have always been into the game and are not afraid to talk about it. I think of uh, Vin Diesel as like the OG yeah. uh, celebrity who is into D&D. Because he even like... I'm pretty sure Riddick was a D&D character, and I know for a fact that uh, The Last Witch Hunter came straight out of one of his uh, 
one of his D and D games. Yeah, yeah, he played D and D when he was a kid. And yeah, I've heard the same thing about about Riddick being being a D and D character. He has one of his tattoos. I don't know which one, but one of his tattoos is like his favorite character. From when he, so if you look carefully in when like one of those Fast and Furious movies, you can see like Vin Diesel's D and D character tattooed <laughs> on his arm. But yeah, he's been talking it. But he was sort of ahead of the curve talking about this stuff. You know that that he's super into D and D. And there's an apocryphal story. I've never gotten confirmation on this, um, but there's a story that when uh, uh, Vin Diesel did um, uh, Chronicles of Riddick, um, the co-star was uh, Dame Judi Dench, I think it was. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I've the, heard the story. story is that yeah, he he sat down and played D and D and taught Judi Dench how to play D and D. And if that's true, that's so awesome and that's one of those times like man i wish i wish i could have been at that table just to see what that was like i've heard that story and every time i hear it i i just get a big shit-eating grin on my face thinking of like i don't know judy dench trying to teach daniel craig how to play D D. <laughs> or yeah yeah totally the other the other game like that that I that I wish man I wish I could have sat down in that game and this is actually a fairly regular game but um, Trey Parker one of the the, the South Park guys mm-hmm. um, he's a, a big D and D guy and he runs semi regular games like for his friends and on at least one occasion I think pretty regularly one of his players is Elon Musk. And I'm like, oh, man, I want to go to that game. I want to watch Elon Musk play a paladin, Dungeon Mastered by Trey Parker. I'm like, man, that looks like such a fun game. It does sound pretty fun. Yeah. This is kind of going to be the last question about D&D and the culture, because um, I do want to get into specifics about your book. A lot of the popularity of D&D right now, as we've discussed, is coming from people who grew up with it and are now, you know, making the media that we're consuming and that's extremely popular. And a lot of it, I feel like, is tied up in a lot of 80s and 90s nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And even though, you know, right now we're enjoying a almost a new golden age of role-playing, it almost feels like the 80s all over again. Do you think that there's maybe a risk that once kind of the 80s nostalgia goes away that D&D might fall back to the uh, the lowly status it had for the longest time? Well, I think there's there's certainly an element of nostalgia at play right now. You know, people are very nostalgic for the 1980s, 80s fashion, 80s culture, 80s games are all sort of very hip and fashionable right now. So, yes, there's a little bit of a risk of, oh, maybe what we're experiencing right now is really just nostalgia driven. And in another five, 10 years, like people aren't going to care about the 80s anymore and it'll go away. And maybe, you know, five years from now, they'll be nostalgic for the 90s. And I don't know, everybody will start playing World of Warcraft again. I don't know. So that's certainly there's a little bit of that. But I think what this hobby has going for it is that, I mean, it's really fun and it's really appealing. And I think the reason why role-playing games are so beloved is because it's inherently social, right? So it's not like a video game that you play a little bit by yourself and you really enjoy the experience, but then you're sort of finished with it and you're done and never go back. D&D and other role-playing games have to be played with a group of friends, and so you don't want 
to give up your friends. Like even, you know, you, you play with somebody for a year, for two years, like you get that sort of social connection and you get that thing going where like, all right, well, maybe we don't, we're not nostalgic for the 80s anymore. Maybe D&D isn't, like, cool like it was in 2019. But, like, I like seeing my friends once a week. I like getting together around the table. And, like, so that gets people coming back. You know, I, I write about all kinds of, of, of games. I talk to people who have all sorts of hobbies. And, like, D&D is one of those things where, like, I, um, there are people who've had campaigns going I mean, forget about, like, they've been playing D&D since the 70s. No, there are people who've been playing, like, the same campaign with the same five or six people for, like, 40 years. And it's because this game builds that sort of social structure. And you want to co- keep coming back and hanging out with those people. And I, and I, I think people are going to get drawn in, and it's not going to go away. In your book, there's a lot of the stories about you and your friends as young men and a lot of the, the people in your then current group i don't know if that's still the same group that you play with pretty much Um, yeah finding the game at a very young age now i found the game in college Mm -hmm. and i feel like a lot of people are finding D D older and a lot of the content produced for D D is made for older audiences so my question to you is do you still feel like in this day and age D&D is a product that kids can find and find enjoyment in? Yes, I think it's still very kid friendly. I think you're right that it's probably aged up a lot. You know, a lot of kids found it and discovered it in the 80s. I think in recent years there's been older people rediscovering it or people who were already gamers you know who were in their 20s who were maybe big into video games then discovered tabletop like that's been a lot of the people discovering it that said i think it can still be very kid friendly and there's two reasons why one is i see a lot of gamers whether they're in the 20s or 30s or 40s who are having kids and cannot wait to teach their kids how to play D&D. And there's been a lot of very young kids, even younger than I, you know, you would have seen at the 80s. At the, in the 80s at the table, it would have been kids like Stranger Things age, you know, mm-hmm. 11, 12, 13, that kind of thing. But now, I mean, I see kids, you know, having like their sixth or seventh birthday party. Like it's a D&D party and they're super into it. Um, so it's a lot of parents wanting to teach their kids and their kids getting into it. Um, the other thing is it's an inherent because it is like a social game it's perfect for kids like that you know parents worry about their kids playing video games still even parents who are gamers worry about their kids playing too much video games because you know you worry about screen time and you know you want your kid to interact and you want the kid to grow and like what's not to like about your kid playing D&D with his friends like that's social it's problem solving like it's really positive and so i think a lot of parents are just like super cool these days with like yeah i want my kids to play D or my kids that are into D i'm going to encourage that which is of course totally different than than what a lot of kids saw in the 80s um content wise it's a little tougher just because like you said like a lot of the content producers a lot of the games on twitch or on podcasts are kind of more adult games um but kids are finding it other ways you know um um, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, uh, one of my friends has a daughter who is seven years old, and she's super into the new She-Ra series that's on mm-hmm. Netflix. 
And so I was babysitting her, and she was like, let's watch She-Ra. And I was like, okay, I hadn't seen it yet. First of all, that show was surprisingly great. Like, I couldn't believe, like, wow, this this is so much better than the old She-Ra. But there's an episode <laughs> of that show where She-Ra and the other princesses of power are planning, like, their invasion, how they're going to how they're going to attack, like, the, the evil sorceress's fortress. And the way that they plan their attack is through a D&D game. They don't call it D&D, but they're sitting around a table, they have like a map, they've got little figurines, and like they run through all these little different like scenarios, like, okay, I do this, no, and I do that, no, you ran into a guard. Like they totally D&D out that whole session. And I think a lot of kids are finding D&D that way. Like they're not, maybe they're not watching Critical Role, but like they're going to see something on She-Ra and be like, oh, that looks like fun. Or, you know, Adventure Time is another great example. That's that's a, a cartoon that both adults and kids love. But, like, Adventure Time, it is a D&D game. And Pendleton Ward is a huge D&D player. So, like, there's lots of cartoons and there's lots of kids' entertainment where, like, kids are finding the game that way. And I think that's going to be great and it's going to create a whole new generation of gamers. So, in, uh, in writing this book, you... I imagine did tons of research. You even mentioned in the book doing more research than was probably necessary just because of how fascinated you were by it. Mm-hmm. What do you think was like the single most fascinating aspect of that research? Well, I think the thing that that really surprised me the most and grabbed me the most was as part of my research, like I, I did a a a search and 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 got copies of literally every newspaper and magazine article that mentioned the words Dungeons and Dragons from the origins of the game to through into like the early 90s. So like during all those formative years if there was even like a local newspaper, you know, I, I used like, you know, the the professional, you know, clipping services that get everything. So I read hundreds and hundreds of articles from newspapers and magazines and stuff Mm -hmm. anyway so what really kind of blew me away was reading through those news clippings from the period that that we refer to as the satanic panic from that period where D&D suddenly got famous but it was famous in a very negative light like people thought, oh, what is this weird game? This is sort of satanic. This is sort of troubling. Like, do we want kids playing this? And what I was really blown away was by how negative and how like poorly constructed the journalism and the media was. And like their coverage of D&D was just so terrible. Like it was really shocking to me, partly because as a journalist, like it hurts me to see crappy journalism. But like I couldn't believe some of these stories like, wow, like – did they really just like say that if you get a chance, it's hard to find a lot of it's sort of bootlegs going around, but like uh, uh, 60 minutes did a report on uh, it's a, it's a long story. We won't get into here, but I talked to it a lot about in the book. There was a kid who went missing uh, and he went missing on his college campus and people started to think, oh, he went missing because he was a D&D player and like he's gotten lost in his game and he's wandering around in the steam tunnels under his campus because he thinks he's an elf and he's on an adventure. And it was all nonsense. But like 60 Minutes did sort of an expose about this missing kid and about how D&D sort of led him astray. 60 Minutes 
is a very well-regarded, you know, all kinds of award-winning news magazine, you know, and this show is so bad. Like, I cannot believe this was on TV, this was on CBS, this was on 60 Minutes. It's just, like, so sensationalistic, and it's so wrong. Just everything that they get wrong about the game. They interview, even interview Gygax and some of the people at TSR, and it's just like, man, that absolutely blew me away in the research, was just how misunderstood this game was and how much the media and institutions like the police and the courts just like completely got everything wrong about this game. In looking at all of these different panics and like media scandals and huge media circuses that happened in the 80s and 90s, it's amazing how bad some of the journalism and police work was for a lot of those major stories. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, there's a whole run of of high-profile kidnappings and murder cases where literally like D&D is in murder cases. Mm-hmm. D&D is presented as a motive. Like, oh yes, this man killed his parents because he's a D&D player. That's the reason why he killed his parents because he's and like literal, like trained, experienced police officers and like lawyers who passed the bar and became district attorneys actually made these arguments of like, oh, yeah, no, it was D&D. D&D was at fault. It's like that is just crazy to me how how messed up that got and how like people mm-hmm. who should know better fell in this trap. You use a very interesting uh, narrative device in this book in that not only are you talking about the history of the game and your own history with it, but you also use excerpts, dramatizations, if you will, of your own games that you were playing at the time of writing and the games that you played in researching. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to add those sections into the book? Well, I I really had two audiences for this book. One was I wanted to write a history for people like myself who loved role-playing games, who had played D&D for a while, but like didn't know a lot about its history and wanted to know more about where it came from. And so for those people, you can just like assume, okay, they know what D&D is and just then give them the history and stuff. But I also wanted to write the book for, you know, like people like my mom, you know, and like people who had heard of D&D and like knew like, oh, my son plays this, but didn't really know what it is. And also because there is, you know, historically been like this sort of, you know, false impression of what the game is. You know, some people hear D&D, they think that it's LARPing. You know, they think mm-hmm. D&D is running around in the woods and yelling fireball, fireball. And like people don't really, a lot of people just don't know what it is. So I wanted to make the book accessible to them. I wanted a person who had never played D&D, who had never really even played any sort of serious tabletop game beyond like Monopoly or Parcheesi or whatever. I wanted people to be able to read this book and really understand the game and know like, okay, this and to help them understand, oh, this is why this is fun. This is cool. And the problem with D&D is it's, it's, you can't just, you know, give the rule set because so much of it is about the experience and about the social interactions and about the story. And so if I just explain, oh, this is a game where you sit down at a table and you pretend to be a wizard or you pretend to be an elf and then somebody walks you through an adventure, 
that doesn't that doesn't really convey anything. So that's the reason why chunks of the book are like I sort of dramatize some of the games that I play. I sort of write them out like they're you know sections in a fantasy novel because I think that helps those people who have never played to sort of understand. Oh, I get it now. Like, okay, I understand how this game works and how it's played. And like, you're really getting a story out of it. And you're continuing these characters and the characters are growing and like they're developing over time. And I think it's also, you know, part of it too is, 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 you know, for me, one of the funnest things is about D and D is, is the stories you make. And, and, you know, it's about sharing stories of like, Oh, this one time at the table, this awesome thing happened. And, you know, you want to share that with people and tell them about, Oh, this cool thing that we did in doing that, narrative device you you kind of made characters out of your your real world friends uh specifically morgan and phil come to mind as standouts of of those sections what did they think when they read the book well i'm i'm glad that none of my friends were mad like they're all still my friends they all mm-hmm. still like the book we fact we still play D together so so they all responded well you know a character like phil you know phil was the bard in in that campaign we were playing at the time and like you sort of say like yeah i made phil a character well phil <laughs> phil is a character like that dude mm-hmm. is in real life he's he's a character i mean this is my friend who's a professional clown so like you know he's 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 a unique guy anyway and he kind of loves that that um, uh, his portrayal in the book, but also one of the things that's been awesome that I've loved about the the reception to the book and that Phil is super pleased about is so um, I don't want to give too much away for people who haven't read it, but um, his character in the book gets uh, involved in a certain like there's a new deity. I'll just say that like he sort of creates his own deity. And I have heard from other players, from people who read the book and, like, have their own campaign worlds. They say, like, oh, yeah, I created a character, and that's my character's deity. Like, I have a cleric <laughs> in this world. And I'm hoping I'm not spoiling that for people. But, yeah, if you've read the book, you know, like, yeah, there are actual campaigns out there where people are like, yes, I am a cleric of that deity. And that is so awesome to me. I love that that's happening. That. I mean, that segues perfectly into my next question. Um, just as a DM myself, has Morgan made that setting that he created available to people outside of your group? Is there is there any way that people can access he has the, the reference material for that? No, not yet. And you're not the first person to ask. And I'm glad that you have asked because every time somebody asks me that, I forward it along to Morgan and be like, listen, people want this. You got to write up that campaign setting. And he's expressed interest. Um, he's just, you know, he's a busy guy. He hasn't gotten around to it yet. But yeah, no, I'm going to tell him now. I'm going to give him a copy of the podcast and tell him, yeah, you got to do this, man. People want to play in that world because it's a really awesome, it's a really awesome and unique campaign world. Mm-hmm. And and Morgan, this is a message for you. If you do write that up and put it on DMs Guild or wherever you want to put it, I will have you on the show to talk about it. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll tell him that. And you know, it's so cool too that that's like a a a, a option for people now that they can put up adventures on DMs Guild, and it's like it's so much easier now to get out your your own personal campaign worlds and your own original adventures like i love that that's happening and it's allowing people to share their creations so much better one of the other things that i i noticed a lot in the book um first of all you started off by saying your favorite edition is 3.5 and if you disagree you can basically stick it where the sun don't shine or something like that you the way you put it was hilarious (laughs) 
Now that you have played 5th edition and run that, that game that you were planning towards the end of the book, and 5th edition has had kind of time to mature and grow a little bit, what do you think of 5th edition, and how do you see it stacking up against your beloved 3.5? So I, I love 5th edition. I think it's great. I think it might be my favorite now. Um, you know, part of the reason why 3.5 was my favorite was because it was the version that we were still playing when I was writing that book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and you know, the reason why I told people, you know, stick it if you don't like 3.5 is, you know, it's, just, <laughs> I, it's such a, when people get into really like passionate, heated arguments about like, no, uh, second edition is better or, oh no, you if you're not playing original white box D&D, you're not really playing D&D. Like I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not interested in those arguments. Like find the debate, find the, find the version that works for you and that you like to play. And that's great. If you like playing old white box D&D, like OD&D, like that's fine. That's great. Awesome. Good for you. I'm happy for you. Um, now with all that said, um, fifth edition i think is just wonderful i think it they did a really good job um getting uh the tone and the feel of the game and sort of of letting the rules get out of the way you know i enjoyed 3.5 in part because 3.5 is really complex and nerdy and I am a complex nerd, you know, like, so I like those rules because they allowed you to do all sorts of crazy things. Like you could really build a very complex and like meaty character and you could have all sorts of different skills and, and, and abilities and stuff. Like it'll, it allowed you to really get deep in there. But I think probably a, a limiting factor of 3.5 is it made it less accessible to people who were just coming into D and D for the first time. Um, fifth edition, I think if, anything i mean look at its success clearly it's accessible to outsiders but i think it's done that without losing the game like you can just pick up fifth edition and start playing but it doesn't feel like DD light it doesn't feel like a counterfeit version of the game just for newbies like it can get just as 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 deep and rich as any other edition and part of that is just how much how well it's written and how well the different settings and adventures have been been put together but i think the rules have also just been like the mechanics of it are are great it's it's the fundamentals you know i think um it's just like i said it's it's helped get all the the super nerdy stuff, like the rules get out of the way and just let you tell a good story and have fun in that world. And so, yeah, I think, I think fifth edition has been great and I'm excited to see them keep building it. Yeah. I was very fortunate in that a uh, fifth edition was actually the first D and D that I ever played. I, I started playing in 2015. Mm-hmm. And so I, I picked up fifth edition immediately and that's the game that I've grown up in as a D and D player. And another thing that I've noticed, right when I first started playing, there was kind of the last vestiges of edition warring. Mm-hmm. People getting really nasty about what editions they like. Yeah. That seems to be completely gone now. Yeah. You, Every you, now and then you can find it, but Yeah. I mean that's part of you know what I was what I was what I was reacting to in the book is when I was still playing three point five and at the time everyone else was playing fourth edition and the whole edition wars thing was so ridiculous, especially then because people who played 
third edition or 3.5 or even were still playing second like there was a lot of people looking down their noses at fourth edition as like oh this is for babies it's a video game like it's a non-real role-playing game and like people just got really uptight about what edition you were playing at that point and it's such a mm. such a stupid thing to get uptight about but yeah i think it's gone now like people don't really care as much anymore and well frankly for one thing it's because almost everybody has switched over to fifth edition um it's funny you know i go to a lot of conventions and stuff and talk to a lot of these these old school players who've been playing for decades and most of them have switched over to fifth edition you still occasionally find a group where like they're playing they're playing uh uh uh, advanced dungeons and dragons but that's just because like that's what they started playing like and it's the same group of guys who's been playing since like 1986 so they've been playing ad and d the whole time but like the vast majority of people out there are just playing fifth now because it's great and because it's 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 accessible and easy and it just it, it's got the feel of D. next couple questions i want to kind of talk a little bit about the somewhat controversial founder of D, that being gary gygax there's something about creative partnerships that creates a certain dynamic be it Stan Lee and Jack Kirby or Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak or really any any duo that was responsible for any big thing where inevitably it devolves into who created what. Mm-hmm. What is it about people like Gygax or people like Stan Lee or Steve Jobs that creates that, well, in I, your opinion? I think... I think it comes down to a couple things. I mean, the important place to start when you're thinking about this is that we're we're talking about a particular kind of creation. We're talking about the hugely famous, hugely successful things that everyone has come to know, whether that's, yeah, like a comic book or whether it's Apple computer or something like that. There's lots of people out there who are just like super creative and they create a cool game or they invent some sort of technology, but like it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere because they're just like some dude who like, I just, I'm not a business person. I just came up with this cool game and I play it with my five friends and they love it. But like, it doesn't go anywhere beyond that. When you start talking about something like Dungeons and Dragons, which was not just a, a success in terms of being a great game, but was also a success in terms of being a great product, which was a huge business success, which made millions and millions of dollars and still makes huge amounts of money. You need different personalities with different skill sets to do that. And when you look at the creators of Dungeons and Dragons, when you look at, at Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, they brought different things to the table. They both were big gamers. They both loved to play games and both loved to write games. But Gary was much more of an entrepreneur. And he was the visionary in terms of this can be a thing. This can just be more than a hobby for us and our friends to share. This can be a product. This can be a company. This can be a huge thing that builds for for decades. 
Dave Arneson was not interested in any of that stuff. Um, he was not interested in being a business titan. He was not interested in, you know, trying to expand the audience beyond his friends and like the people in his wargaming uh, hobby. And in fact, after D&D started to become really successful, Dave sort of lost interest in Dungeons and Dragons. He wanted, he was more interested in like the, you know, the naval warfare games and, you know, the different, you know, uh, uh, battle simulations that he played. He kind of went back to those when D&D got super uh, uh, popular because it just, that was what caught his interest. So I think a lot of the conflict between those two guys, but also between when you look at guys like Steve Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak or like these other sort of famous pairs is that, well, one person has to be sort of, you know, it doesn't have to be, but a very success way to have that successful partnership is to have one person who's who's the engineer one person who is the creator whether it's the guy who sort of comes up with the rules who builds the mechanics of it or the dude who actually you know creates the computer and writes the software and then you have the guy who is the impresario the guy who's like no we're going to make a business out of this and he's going to crack the whip and you know that's not to be a negative thing like this game would never exist we wouldn't be playing it now if gary did not sort of you know buckle things down and be like no let's have a product I'm going to give you a deadline. Don't just create this game, but like have it to me by Friday so we can publish this. Like that's the mm-hmm. important stuff that a guy like Gary has to do where, you know, maybe a guy like Dave Arneson isn't going to be too thrilled about that kind of stuff. But ultimately that's a lot of why those partnerships work in the sense that they create great things because people bring different things to the table, but it also, you know, that causes personality problems too. I mean, it's just something that came up in my head while I was listening to your book and, you know, thinking about all the different times where that's happened, it seems like any time there's that kind of dynamic partnership of this guy's the pizzazz and this guy's kind of the, the, the engineer behind it all, that inevitably seems to happen. Yeah. And it just, it just got me thinking about it. Yeah, it happens all the time. And I think it is because like it's it's a it's a volatile recipe. It's one that really that works like it, it, it helps you create great product. But on the other hand, like it's not a long term proposition because sooner or later, those sort of personality types are just going to blow up against each other. What do you think? What, what are your thoughts on the overall legacy of Gary Gygax? Well, I think Gary is a legend at this point, and I think rightfully so. I mean, if you think about what he created, it's absolutely profound. I mean, this isn't just a guy who created a game that people still love. I mean, there's lots of people in the game industry, I think, who are a legend, whether it's tabletop or whether it's video games, but like, you know, uh, uh, in video games, let's take just for example, um, um, Shigeru Miyamoto, who's the fantastic legendary designer for Nintendo, who created Super Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. Dude's a legend. Dude's amazing. Dude'll be remembered for a long time. Um, but Gary did something beyond just creating a a a game that we still love and still play. Is the first thing is he built this game that is social, so that like he created this new structure of like, like me, like I said, like when I grew up playing this game with my friends and like it brought us together and like, I'm still friends with those dudes. And like now, like I started playing, um, 
uh, D&D with the guys who were I uh, wrote about in my book and like they became real friends and like those dudes were at my wedding I was at theirs like we hang out all the time now like they're some of my best friends and that not just when we're playing D&D but like we have this social life and that's something that that Gary created right so like mm-hmm. if that game didn't exist if it wasn't like this social game that brought people together so many lives would be different and then also mm-hmm. the whole thing that we've been talking about with like D&D and the media and the fact that there's you know actors and producers and writers and there's this whole generation of people who are content creators and are doing that are people who are telling stories because they play dungeons and dragons dungeons and dragons got them interested in telling stories there's so many media things today that we just wouldn't have if it wasn't for dungeons and dragons i mean hell what's the biggest the biggest media phenomenon in the last decade has been the marvel movies right the whole whole mcu Mm -hmm. very first movie in the in the uh in the mcu is iron man directed by john favreau john favreau played dungeons and dragons when he was a kid and has said specifically in interviews that Playing Dungeons and Dragons is what got him interested in telling stories and that he wouldn't be a director if it hadn't been for Dungeons and Dragons. So there you go, man. Like if it hadn't Mm -hmm. been for Gary Gygax creating this game that got people's imagination going, then I mean, maybe we wouldn't have the MCU. We wouldn't have this whole new generation of media. And so that I think is, you know, the long way of getting around to the point of Gary Gygax's legacy is not just here's a dude who created a great game. It's Mm -hmm. here's a person who inspired an entire generation, who created friendships, who created new media, who inspired people to go off and tell their own stories, to invent their own products, to create their own games. Like that I think is the real legacy. It's just like he inspired people to go and do more. It was more than just the hours we spend at the table playing the game. It was what you do when you walk away from the table. And his he affected so many people's lives like that. And I think that's his true legacy. In your book, you cover as far as history is concerned, all the way up to pretty much the kind of the collapse of TSR in general and where it's kind of picked up by Wizards of the Coast. Mm -hmm. Would you have any interest in revisiting the history of Dungeons and Dragons and talking in more detail about that, that bust in the early to mid nineties and then the D 20 boom that came in the early two thousands. Yeah. I'd love to go back. And I mean, when I first started writing the book, I was like, Oh, I'm going to do the complete history. I'm going to talk about all the cool, all the stuff in the nineties. I'll go up to the two thousands when the game was really not popular at all. But then, you know, there came a point where my publishers was like, we really don't want to publish a 700 page book about Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I guess I sort of understand that. But yeah, I mean, I, I have thought about going back, uh, to tell more of those stories i mean particularly in the 90s um the early years at wizards of the coast there was a lot of amazing stuff that come out um there was interesting stuff that happened with 3.0 and 3.5 and not just the game itself but there's some really interesting business stuff i mean the stuff that that wizards did with the open gaming license and you know the t20 system is all really interesting and and, um, uh, yeah, I'd love to go back to that at some point. I don't know if I'll have the time, but, you know, I might tell little stories like that here and there. There's a super interesting pattern that emerges in media in the 90s. It happened – so 
I, I get the sense that you're much the same way that I am and that I am a nerd in every sense of the word. I've been into D&D, comics, video games, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it seems like when you get to the 90s in every single medium, including comics, including role-playing games, even including like wrestling – there was this massive oversaturation in the 90s of content of just everything that all inevitably led to a period of just complete and total bust. Yeah. And I feel like there's a really interesting story to be told around role-playing, but also involving all these other media that also had the same peak and then complete and total bust all for seemingly the same reason. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of interesting stuff that happened and I know a lot of it I think is tied to, there's some interesting connections to, uh, uh, to technology and the internet and like the rise of multiplayer gaming and things like uh, MMOs and world of Warcraft and just how like attention completely shifted from like one area of culture to another and just like all that you know a lot of that stuff you know the comics business the tabletop gaming business you know all these sort of traditional geek uh uh hot spots from the 80s and 90s just like they just ate it in the 2000s because people were interested in totally different and new things and and uh, yeah there's a lot of, of interesting stuff that happened there and then i know you know, you said you were interested in that book. You're not sure you're going to get around to it. So I won't ask you this as if you're the one who's going to write it. But do you think there's an interesting story to be told about the current rise of D&D? Oh, sure. That would make an, an, an interesting book. Yeah, it's an interesting book. It's also something that's, you know, the difference now is, you know, when I wrote my book, um, part of why I wrote it is because there was no real coverage and history of, like, what happened with these games in the 70s 80s and 90s the difference now is that D&D is like getting actual media coverage so like i would love to see a book on what's happening now and i'm sure there will be books but like there's also just like there's mainstream coverage there was literally a story just like in the last day or two um um Bloomberg News did a big story about guys who are professional DMs who like DM for money. Like they get paid like a couple hundred bucks a, uh, a session to DM for for groups, whether it's a party or whether it's just gamers who don't have their own DM. But like that was in Bloomberg News. You know, uh, the New York Times is covering uh, D and D stuff now. You know, there's been things in the Washington Post. Yeah, the Post, the Washington Post had a story just like a month or two ago. But like that's what's so different now is that like D and D is so popular right now but also has become so much more mainstream that like you don't have to wait 20 years for a book to come out to find out what's happening like a lot of the stuff i wrote about in my book some crazy stuff that happened to tsr in the 1980s right now if wizards of the coast was doing that same sort of stuff like that would be on 12 different blogs it would be written about mm-hmm. like someone would you know i would probably write about it and like that would be at, at forbes or at the wall street journal or somewhere so like you wouldn't have to wait for a book to come out to find you know like if you know if wizards of the coast said we're gonna buy a railroad 
That would be a blog post the next day. A lot of people would be talking mm. about that. But like that happened with TSR in the 1980s, and people really didn't know about that for a couple <laughs> decades afterwards. But like, yeah, the, the media coverage of the game has changed a lot. Yeah, if Wizards had like a, a fire fest moment, there'd be documentaries and everything. Oh my god, it yeah, it'd be crazy. I mean, there's a lot of attention paid on the game right now, and that's a great thing, but it's also like, it makes their job, I'm sure, a lot harder, too. David, we've talked a lot about of Dyson Men. Uh, however, there is another book that has your name on it, uh, Defying Reality, the Inside Story of the Virtual Reality Revolution. This book's a year old at this point, but I, I just want to give you the opportunity to discuss that book and uh, kind of give people, myself included, I've actually not read that book either, just kind of the, the pitch on it. Sure. Well, I mean, I I write about the game industry. I mean, I'm a business journalist. I, I you know, started working on the D&D book in part because I was writing a lot about the video game industry. And so like this, I cover lots of stuff having to do with the sort of digital entertainment and tabletop and everything. So... What happened was I wrote uh, one of the first big cover stories about Palmer Luckey, who is the founder of Oculus VR, uh, a couple years ago. It was a big cover story for Forbes. And I had always been excited about VR, in part because, like, you know, when I was a high schooler, like, I played these cyberpunk role-playing games you know i was into games like like cyberpunk 2020 and Shadowrun. these games were like you can jack into cyberspace and like go through virtual reality and like i was super into those games so i'd always been really excited about virtual reality but the products had always sucked and then i got assigned to write this cover story about oculus who has created like this new revolutionary headset and went and tried it and was like couldn't believe it it was so good like it was the first time i'd actually tried one of these vr things that actually was fun and worked and didn't make me want to barf from motion sickness and so uh the new book defying reality is about the new generation of virtual reality it's about you know part of its history so it sort of talks about where did virtual reality come from and that's something that really goes back thousands of years where it's you know this it's it's sort of the latest version of man's attempts to create this truly immersive entertainment so you look at things like you know like 3d movies and going back further you know like interactive sort of stereo optic stuff and you know lantern shows and like this whole history of of human entertainment has been like how can we make this more immersive how can we really put you inside of the the story that we want to tell and then it gets into like the modern products coming out right now that have come out in the last year or two and just how transformative they are i think a lot of people have heard about virtual reality in the last couple years maybe some of them have tried uh the new like the tried the oculus rift or tried htc's product or have tried some of these new products but like i don't think people have really gotten yet like oh no it's for real now and so i've spent a lot of time talking to the companies who are making these products but also like the people who are out there using them and like there's really a lot of businesses and industries that are starting to use vr and starting to use ar too which is more like the thing where you're wearing glasses that sort of project images into the real world and the bottom line is this is crazy transformative technology and it's going to be unbelievably huge like this is like internet 
TV level, like in 10 years, 15 years, like this is going to be everywhere. We're all going to be wearing these glasses. We're all going to be consuming our entertainment and these goggles and stuff. And so I think the book is interesting just because like, hey, this is what's coming. But also if you're a, a role-playing game person, if you're into D&D, like this is a phenomenal tool for entertainment and gaming. And it's also, I think, going to be really crazy for use in role-playing games. It's really going to change how we play uh, uh, tabletop games and, and how we, we meet up together with friends. So just like, I think it sort of follows naturally from a book about about role-playing games. And it's a lot more forward-looking about like where this technology is going in the future. But um, I think anybody who's into gaming and a tabletop should be, I think they'll find stuff to be interested in about this. One of the things that I personally find interesting about VR, one of the most innovative people in the history of video games, John Carmack, has now jumped on the VR train and is still innovating just in a different sphere. And the fact that a guy like John Carmack would make that transition tells me a lot about what, what VR means for the future of not just gaming, but the future of technology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Carmack is a super genius. I mean, not just only that he's an incredibly influential you know, game designer. I mean, this is the guy who, who, who helped build Doom, but like he's super, super smart guy. His hobby company is he's literally a rocket scientist like carmack has Mm -hmm. got a rocket company that's his like hobby company right it's like a billion dollar company in its own right but like that's like his hobby but um the fact that a guy like that tried this technology like he tried one of the first prototypes of the oculus rift and was instantly sold he could see like yeah this is the future this is going to be it and I see that over and over again when I'm talking to executives and designers in particular at video games who are like, they all know that, yeah, VR is, is it. And I don't think VR is going to destroy other kinds of gaming. It's not like VR is going to be re- replacing PC gaming or console gaming or anything, but like everybody in the industry sort of recognizes like, yeah, this is powerful and this is going to be big. David, thank you so much for coming on the show right now. Um, it's been great talking to you. It's been great having this conversation. Real quick before we, we go, is there anything else you'd like to promote? Any social media, anything like that? Yeah, um, well, people can follow me on social media. I'm on, they can follow me on Facebook or on Twitter. It's dewalt, D-E-W-A-L-T. Uh, you can go to my website, davidmewalt.com, and find links to stuff there. Um, the new book is Defying Reality. The old book is Of Dice and Men. And also sort of tease that I have been working on some some game stuff now you haven't finished of Dyson men so i don't want to give anything away too much but like there's some stuff related to the end of the book like some stuff from like my you know from uh uh that i'm designing some game stuff that i think is going to come out next year if i can finish in time so yeah so follow me on on social media and stuff and then when i come out with some of that new gaming stuff you'll be able to to find it david thank you so much for coming on again guys this has been a, a really fun episode stay tuned uh, next week we are going to have the guys from mystic dragon games come on talk about their upcoming kickstarter uh but until then if you and your friend have come up with a great idea that you think is going to sell millions and be the next big thing don't steal it from them later and try to cut them out i'll see you next time (laughs) 